Well, hello, Heritage family. I am so glad we get to be together as we encounter Jesus fresh and new through his word today. That's been my prayer for us, is that as we've already been journeying through this series and encountering Jesus in new and fresh ways, that he would continue to be faithful in allowing us to encounter him even Today. My name is Jeremiah. I get to be one of our teaching pastors here. I want to welcome all of you here in Rock Island, at Bettendorf, men in Kiwani, and those of you joining us online as we continue in our Last Words of Jesus message series. This has been a great series where God has been, as I said, revealing himself to us and calling us to more as a body, as individuals, as families in our community. I'm so thankful for what he's doing in and through us. Now, as I said, I get to be one of our teaching pastors. I also get to be Sarah's husband and Jubilee and Zechariah's dad. Uh, I love getting to play all of those roles and how they kind of intersect in different ways. Um, and uh, in our house, if you were to kind of hang out with us for a few days, you would begin to pick up on the fact that we're really intentional in making sure uh, I say three things to my kids every day. Uh, we say more than that, but these are the three things that I want them to hear from me every day. So at some point throughout the day, they will hear me say to them, I love you very much. At some point during the day, they'll hear me say to them that I thank God for you and I pray for you every day. And at some point during the day, they will hear me say, you are my favorite kids in the whole world. And, uh, and all three of those things are true. And, uh, and, and so I love that that's part of just kind of the fabric of our family. But I don't want you to get the wrong impression of who we are as a family either, okay? Because those are three really intentional things that we say every day. There are also lots of not really intentional things that we say every day in our family. It's like every day we have to have a conversation that goes something like this. Can you just love each other for like a minute? Can you, could you just stop touching each other, all right? Jubilee is seven, Zechariah is five, and I don't know why we still have to have the conversation that, that goes something like this. Not every day, but consistently enough, it amazes me that we say, since when? When have we ever said you could use our carpet as a napkin or the chair or the couch, right? I don't understand what happens, but that's part of the conversation in our house. We, you might hear things like this just about every day. It's called permanent marker for a reason. For a reason. Why did you draw on your sister's belly button with a Sharpie? Like what, what brought that about? And there are moments where I'll get, I'll get to the end of my tether. And I will start to act a lot more like one of my children than the adult that I'm supposed to be. And then I say something that I immediately regret. And I have to model what it looks like to ask for forgiveness from my kids. I share that with you, one, so you know how to pray for us, okay? Like, yeah, I know, we've, don't worry, we've taken Sharpies away, all right? But so you know how to pray for us, but also because I think it highlights the first truth that's on your note guide if you're following along today, and it's this. It's that we know words matter. We know that words matter. Deep within us, we understand this truth. Some of our deepest wounds in each of our lives have come from an unkind word spoken in an ill-timed moment. 
Some of our happiest memories usually involve someone speaking the things of life over us and into us. We understand this truth that words matter. We get it. I think we also understand that the context in which a word is given, in the context in which they're said, can amplify and elevate them in a special way. For example, think of a couple who is expressing love for one another verbally, you know, out for a date, and they say, I love you, and it's gooey, and it's sweet, and it's nice, and whatever. But then take that same couple expressing the same love for each other in the context of a wedding where there's covenant and community and that conversation and those same words of love and care, well, they take on deeper meaning. In my own life, uh, in my own life, I've told you some about my grandma Carol before. My grandma Carol is one of my heroes in life. Carol, my grandma, is the one who really helped me uh, discover more of who Jesus is. She taught me how to pray. She taught me how to listen to the Holy Spirit and obey him. She modeled what it looked like to be obedient even when it cost her everything. Grandma was one of my heroes. And over the course of um, my life, I would talk to her fairly often in person, over the phone, by email, and even instant message. That's how long ago it was. For those of you who don't know, instant message was like texting before texting, okay? And so in the course of those conversations, I would always tell her I love her. Always, because I did, and it's true. And so thousands of times, I told my grandma I love her. And dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times in the course of those same conversations, I would let her know I'm so thankful for her and that I'm proud of her. Those are great words, but they took on greater resonance, deeper significance when one day across a thousand or so miles, a family member of mine held a phone receiver up to her ear as she was in her hospital room. And I, from my office, said for the last time this side of heaven to her, I love you. I'm thankful for you. And I'm so proud of you. Do you understand how context, the same words in a different context, give them deeper resonance? Even sometimes it feels like greater meaning for us. As we've been in this journey of the last words of Jesus, we, many of us, recognize that the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, are significant in and of themselves, because Jesus is a pretty awesome guy, greatest teacher who ever lived. So when he says something, we listen. But in the context of the cross, in the context of the cross, it's that context that gives these words deeper resonance, a heavier weight for us. And Pastor Sean and Pastor Justin have done a great job of unpacking some of those last words of Jesus from the cross for us. And we're going to look at another statement today in Matthew chapter 27. So if you have your scriptures with you, you can turn there. You can turn in your note guide. All the scriptures are also going to be here uh, on the screen. And in Matthew chapter 27, we notice a couple of things. First of all, Matthew is one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. He's a Hebrew. He's somebody who follows the, the rituals, the rites, and the lifestyle of Judaism. And he is convinced that Jesus is the promised one, the anointed rescuer sent by God to at long last set all things right and make all things new. And so he's trying to convince his fellow Hebrews that this Jesus whom he speaks about is that promised anointed servant who at long last is setting all things right and making all things new. Throughout the course of Matthew, you'll notice a couple things. One, that Jesus talks a lot. 
Jesus did a lot of teaching. In fact, from, you know, later on in chapter 2 on, there's a lot of red letters in your Bible if you have a red letter version. Red letters always indicate when Jesus is speaking, if you have something like that. You'll notice that those red letters, they, they kind of flow pretty consistently through Matthew. There are moments of narrative along the way, but they flow pretty consistently through Matthew until about chapter 27, which is where we are today. And then Jesus, the great teacher, gets conspicuously quiet. In fulfillment of prophecy told long ago that like a lamb before his shearers would be silent, Jesus is quiet before those who falsely accuse him and who find him guilty even though he's innocent and condemn him to die. And then Matthew records the crucifixion of Jesus and highlights only one statement of Jesus from the cross. Only one. We know there are others if we've been following along in this message series, right? Pastor Sean and Pastor Justin shared other statements, and there are more to come. But Matthew focuses on only one. And so in that contrast, this statement of Jesus kind of pops off the page for us. It's in that context that it holds greater weight and deeper resonance. Let me tell you what's been going on up to this point. We kind of intersect the story after Jesus has been tried and found guilty, even though he's innocent. After he's been condemned to death. After he has been flogged and whipped to the point where his ribs are showing. After he has been nailed to a cross by his hands and his feet. And stripped naked in front of a crowd of people. His closest friends and followers have either betrayed him or left him. He's, as the process of crucifixion takes place, he begins to lose the control of how waste leaves his body. And so here he is in this shameful state. And there are people crucified to his right and to his left who are mocking Jesus. There are others who are mocking him as well. And the religious leaders in the, near the foot of the cross who should have known, who should have been some of the very first to see that Jesus was son of God and son of man, the one sent at long last to set all things right and make them new. The religious leaders, they from near the cross echo the words of Satan from earlier in the book saying if he is the son of God, he can save himself. It's in this context that we read these words in the book of Matthew. It says from noon... Until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Pause there. There's something of cosmic significance happening. Even if you miss the whole thing about who Jesus is and what he was doing, when the whole earth goes dark for three hours, it's a pretty good indicator that something of significance is happening there. And then he continues, he says, about three in the afternoon... Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Here's the one statement, the only thing that Matthew records. Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who can blame Jesus in that space where his friends have left him or betrayed him? Where he's on display in shame for all the world to see? 
where he's suffering and beginning to suffocate by the weight of his own body holding him on the cross. Who can blame Jesus for crying out, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you left me here all alone? Who can blame him? But why is it that of all the statements from the cross, Matthew chooses this one to share with his hearers. Why is it that it's this one? I believe, I believe it's because we need to understand this. It's that on the cross, Jesus was broken. On the cross, Jesus was broken. He was broken so that we could be made whole. He was broken and by his wounds, scripture says, we are healed. On the cross, Jesus was broken. But not just bodily, I don't believe. I believe Jesus experienced the brokenness of heart. I believe deep down in the very depths of who he is, he experienced brokenness. A brokenness far beyond what any of us can ever conceive. The brokenness that Jesus experienced on the cross moves far beyond what you or I can ever understand or fully comprehend. Because in this moment, as the weight of my sin and your sin rested on him. And he experienced what it was to be separated in fellowship from his father for the first time. There's a depth of brokenness we cannot fully understand. But what that means for us, church, listen to this. What that means for us, the brokenness that Jesus endured on the cross means that there is no broken space in your life that Jesus is not uniquely capable of stepping into and offering wholeness and hope and life. He was broken far beyond what we can understand, but that means Friends, that means that there is no space in your life, no challenge, no problem. There is no relationship, no consequence that you are facing where Jesus cannot understand and minister to you and to me in our own brokenness. You are not too broken. It is not too far gone. Jesus understands better than anyone. You see, on the cross, Jesus was broken. But he wasn't hopeless. Jesus was broken, but he was not hopeless. That's important for us to understand. You see, what happens here is <clears throat> Jesus cries out in his heart language. You see, Matthew records this moment not in Latin, which is the language of the occupying government around. He records it not in Greek, which is the, the language spoken throughout the known world at the time. He doesn't record it in the common language kind of used in the marketplace. He records this in the heart language of Jesus in Hebrew. It's a sense that, yes, deep from the depth of his soul, this phrase wells up out of Jesus' heart. And in his own heart language, he asks the question, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Remember, Matthew is writing to Hebrews, and he wants them to understand what's happening here. So it's really helpful if we understand that Jesus isn't just, quote, isn't just saying some random phrase that bubbles to the top. He's actually quoting the very first verse of Psalm number 22. 
The very first verse of Psalm number 22, the psalm that some scholars believe was actually sung at this time of day at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the temple. So picture this. It's possible that at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as Jesus was dying on the cross, there was a priest in the temple singing out the first words of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as Jesus proclaims it from the cross as well. And what's significant, what we need to understand about that is that this psalm, 22, that begins with the cry of lament and brokenness, ends with the victory and vindication of the servant. That where the psalmist begins crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the end of the story in the psalm, you see that God is victorious and that he's using this suffering servant to make all things right. That he is using this suffering servant to bring hope and life. That God is victorious. So I believe all of that was loaded in that phrase. As Jesus, with one of his dying gasps of breath, asked the question. Yes, it was a mournful lament, but for anybody who had ears to hear, it was a proclamation that I may be dying here, but I will at last be vindicated. I will at last be vindicated. Watch what happens in the psalm. It says, for he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help, even in that forsaken space, even in that place of mournful lament, God was listening, and his ear was tuned. And the psalmist continues later, posterity, those who will come after will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Woohoo! Glory to God. Praise be to him and him alone. This psalm that begins with lament ends with us proclaiming God alone has done a great work. You understand in the context of the cross, how deeply resonant this is for us. How much it means for us. Jesus is proclaiming that he is that God-sent rescuer. The promised one awaited for so long. He's proclaiming that God will bring vindication. And in, a, in an ironic touch, those who, have, who should have been most aware are the ones seeking to destroy him. And it reminds me that there are spaces and places where Jesus is speaking. And I can move so quickly past that I don't, I don't sit in what he is saying to me about me and about us. Those who should have known the most seem to be the deafest, the most deaf to what he was saying. What this reminds me of though as well is that even in our broken spaces, there is hope. Just as Jesus was broken, but not hopeless, you and I can know what it is to hold on to hope. Because again, Jesus is uniquely qualified to speak to us in those spaces. I believe that Jesus was able to cling to hope in that moment because of this truth that he saw and we need to understand that God is at work even in our forsaken spaces. 
God is at work even in our forsaken spaces. You see, Jesus knew, even there, being broken so that we could be made whole, suffering so we could know healing. He knew that God is at work even in those spaces of forsakenness. Matthew, the writer of this gospel here, highlights this statement by it being the only one that's there, right? And then he ties it to something immediately after. He says that after Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After that, he cries out again, but he doesn't record if anything is said. We know that there was. We know that there's another statement of Jesus there. But he doesn't tell us what it is. And instead, he ties that cry to what happens next. It's an incredible turn of events. Look and see what happens. Just then, as Jesus died, just then, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Hugely significant. We don't have time to dig into that right now. The earth shook, and the rocks were split apart. And tombs were open, and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. What just happened? Did you, did you read that passage of scripture? Matthew ties this cry, this forsaken lament, to the moment Jesus dies, and he shows us that God is at work, even in our forsaken spaces. That the moment Jesus died, the veil was torn, the earth shook, rocks were split open, tombs burst open, and holy men and women were raised from the dead. Scripture actually records that on Jesus' resurrection day, a few days later, and I know sometimes in church world we move too quickly from the cross to resurrection, but most of us know where the story's going anyway, right? And Matthew leads us there very quickly. That on the resurrection day of Jesus, these raised saints were seen throughout the city of Jerusalem. Now think about this for a moment. What was Sunday dinner like in Jerusalem that day? There had been some events happening. You know, there had been some crucifixions that took place. There had been an earthquake. The earth had gone dark. There's some, some big stuff happening. And you're sitting down for your Sunday brisket family. There's a knock at the door. You go to see who it is. And it is dead Uncle Fred. <laughs> and he says, you will not believe what's happened. This is the kind of thing that's happening. It's amazing. And what it demonstrates for me is that even in that forsaken space, even in that forsaken space, the power of resurrection was beginning to take root. Even in that forsaken space, God was at work in phenomenal, incredible ways. And it makes me wonder, what are the dead and buried graveyard places in your life where you need to be reminded that the power of the resurrection is tied to the work of Jesus and he can raise from the dead that which is long past hope. You see, God was at work even in that forsaken space and I am convinced, I am convinced, I am convinced that he is at work in the forsaken spaces of our lives. 
in the places where we feel alone and abandoned and forgotten. That God is at work there, wanting to reveal himself fresh and new. I believe it in the very core of who I am. In fact, I, I don't believe it's just even in our forsaken spaces, but I believe God works especially in our forsaken spaces. He specializes in taking what is broken and making it whole. He specializes in taking what is lost and helping it be found. He specializes in those places. I believe God is at work in our forsaken spaces. I believe that's true today for you and for me right now. I believe in those spaces, those are the places where God in our most broken, most forsaken spaces does the greatest work in and through us. And I think that's true because it's in those spaces where we find ourselves coming to the end of ourselves. And we realize that if Jesus is all we have, he is more than sufficient. And his way is higher than mine. I believe God is at work in our forsaken spaces. I think we also need to understand this. That the work of Jesus means we are never alone. The work of Jesus means we are never alone. Never. Once we've entered into relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a friend who is closer than a brother. Once we've entered into relationship with Jesus, he makes us free to live in community with him and with others as never before. Meaning we are never alone. The next words that Matthew records of Jesus after his death are interesting. Because again, remember, there's just so much silence here. The, after the, the moment of death and you know, all that amazing stuff happening, we see on Resurrection Sunday Jesus speaking to some of his first followers. And the first thing he says to them is, hello. Because... You know, even when you're the risen Lord of the universe who's conquered sin and death and the grave, you're still polite, right? He says, greetings. But what follows right on the heels of that is, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's, a, it's an incredible moment. And then he gathers all of his first followers who are there, most of them anyway, and he begins to share with them more of what they kind of already knew, that everything is different now. That Jesus has brought heaven to earth, he's restored and is restoring a fallen and broken humanity that was in a downward spiral away from him and what God had designed all along. That the kingdom of heaven has come and is coming in its fullness. That freedom and justice and hope and life are beginning to take root in the world in a way unprecedented because of what Jesus had done. And now his first followers, well, they had to tell the story. They had to go and tell other people what had happened. But more than that, they had to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Not of themselves, but of Jesus, the risen one. They had to be about this kingdom work because everything was different now. Because hope was present. Because life was known. Because truth had resounded. Everything was different. And then as he's telling his disciples these things, this is what he says 
later on in Matthew 28. He says, teach these new disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. Teach them to obey all the commands I have given you. A lot of those red letters earlier in the book of Matthew. And be sure of this. Don't doubt it for a second. I am with you always. To the end of the age. You see, the work of Jesus means we are never alone. In Hebrews and in Deuteronomy, God speaks this to his people. Those are two other books of the scriptures. And he says to them, I will never leave you or forsake you. We are never alone. It's an incredible promise and hope for us. But what do we do with that? So what? What do we do with this? I think it leads us to ask ourselves this question, one that the Holy Spirit needs to answer for us today. It's where have you become convinced? Where have I become convinced that you are alone? Where have you become convinced that you are alone, abandoned, forgotten, forsaken? Where have you become convinced that no one knows or cares or sees? What relationship or circumstance? What dying dream? What part of your marriage? What part of your interaction with your kids or your parents or your coworkers? Where have you become convinced that you are alone? There's space in your note guide, actually, if you want to write that down as the Spirit of God speaks to you. And as he reveals that to you, I think there are a couple of next steps for each of us out of that. The first one is this, that we need to ask for eyes to see where God is at work. Because remember, even or especially in those forsaken spaces, God is at work. He is at work. There are times and spaces in our lives where we have moved so far outside of the freedom and the favor and the direction and the leadership of God that we wonder if we can ever know what it is to live back in that place where his freedom and favor flows so freely. And I want you to know, even when we've stepped away from him, God is at work calling us to himself. Ask for eyes to see where God is at work. He will lead you on a journey that is unlike any other. The outcome may not be what you would have designed or desired, but he is good and he is at work. So we ask for eyes to see where God is at work. It begins in stepping into relationship with him. If you've never done that, I implore you. Make today the day where you ask Jesus to be the one who forgives and leads you. Where you proclaim him as the leader of your life, the one who rose and who is the only one capable of leading you well. There's a prayer in your note guide if you're looking for some handholds on how to do that. If you make that step today, I invite you, talk to somebody. Find somebody at one of our campuses wearing a lanyard. Find one of our, one of our team members at Kiwani. If you're watching online, fill out the communication card and send that in. Tell somebody, because that's not a journey to be walked alone. And the next thing we do is this. We cling to hope, even in brokenness. Don't give up. God is at work. Part of clinging to hope in brokenness, 
is letting other people into those broken spaces. It's sharing with someone the thing that you identified today. Again, whether that's someone at one of our campuses, a member of our team, or someone you trust and know, it's inviting them into that. Because remember, the restoration that Jesus brings is relationship with God, but also with each other. Part of clinging to hope is inviting others into those spaces, but I want to invite you not to give up. Choose to pursue Jesus and his way. Trust that he is good, that he is glorious. And that even when your heart's cry of lament is why am I abandoned and alone, you can hold on to hope that vindication and victory will come. It may not look like what you had in mind, but it's there as you pursue him. You are not alone. He is at work and we have hope. So let's pray. Jesus, Savior, Oh God, we are so thankful for the gift of you and your cross. For what you reveal to us about your heart and the Father's heart. I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, those whom you have been speaking to and identifying, there is a space where you've become convinced you're alone and it isn't true. There's a space where you've become convinced I've abandoned you and left you. God, I pray that you would give them courage and strength to pursue you even in that space. Oh God, bring us to the end of ourselves so we can say with hearts full of praise that Jesus, if you are all we have, that is more than enough. Be with us, lead us, guide us, help us, restore us. Not for our sake, but for your great name and your glory alone, oh God, do we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.